Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. I'm Michael, lead pastor at Salt. If I haven't met you, it's great that you're here. Uh, Great if you're new amongst us and great if you're a regular member as well. Um, I want to begin this morning by talking to you about conflict. Um, Before we talk about that, how's your weekend going? (laughs) Uh, Conflict, angst, opposition, let's talk about that. Um, How do you go when someone disagrees with you? Disagrees with you strongly, with great emotion, how do you manage conflict? And if you're a follower of Jesus... How do you go when someone disagrees with you over Jesus, over Christianity, over you being a Christian? Uh, They reckon there's four types of people uh, when it comes to conflict, Uh, four animals, here they are. Are you the leading line, so competitive, dominant, strong, confident, big picture person? Is that who you are? Or are you the camel? (laughs) Competent, focused, logical, specific, detailed, structured. Or the much-loved monkey. Uh, Friendly, joyful, spontaneous, talkative, energetic. The last one is the tranquil turtle. Consistent, uh, wise and calm, flexible, laid-back and agreeable. Have you worked out which one you are? You've all got your position. There could be some interesting conversations Uh, in the car on the way home between married couples. Um, You've worked it out and your way is the best way, isn't it? That's the way it should be done. But they actually say that um, they all have strengths and weaknesses. But can I say, have you noticed how badly we do conflict as a community, as a culture? It just seems to be getting worse and worse, doesn't it? Uh, It seems to me it's either super aggressive... Uh, Or it's the cancel culture, isn't it? I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to deal with you. Uh, But have you also noticed when it comes to Christianity, uh, there can be some pretty large-scale, loud-noise voices against Christianity. Uh, They can even have some power. They can even lobby government. Uh, There can be pressure on things like scripture in school, teaching about Jesus in schools with parents' permission even. Uh, There can be angst about that. There can be um, angst about university campuses running Christian groups or talking about Jesus in your workplace. Um, There can be all that going on. Uh, It can be an appearance of everyone hates Christianity and hates Christians. And yet, when I talk to my neighbour, he's actually pretty friendly when it comes to talking about Jesus. Um, Occasionally, there's angst. But so often there's curiosity and there's interest and there's surprise. Wow, I thought Christians were bigoted, hateful, uh, and I've just met you. I'm not trying to boast. <laughs> um, what, do we, what do we make of all this as Christians? Uh, and if you're, if you're new to Christian things, if you're exploring Christianity, great to have you on the journey, but come with me as we look at how are Christians to be different uh, when it comes to conflict. 
So where are we? We're in the book of Acts. It's a book in the New Testament. Uh, and what's, uh, you, you answer this question for me, what's Acts all about? If you've been with us over the number of weeks, you know the answer. Jesus has died, Jesus has risen. Now the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is going out in an unstoppable way from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Uh, and what do we mean by the gospel? We just mean the good news of Jesus. That now Jesus is risen, now Jesus is king, you can be forgiven. You need to turn to him, you need to trust him. Now you can have a relationship with God. Now you can have a fresh start. But critically, it's also the history of threats to the gospel. It's also the history of hostility to the gospel, of opposition and conflict to the gospel. And so Acts is not, it's not the history of the smooth sailing of the gospel, You could say it's the history of the unstoppable, well, let's say difficult, spread of the gospel. And it is interesting, isn't it, that why does Luke include these opposition stories, if you you like, opposition episodes? Um, He actually pauses and says, let me tell you what happened. Um, Because he could have left them out, he could have just gone with the positive, the upbeat, the so-called success story of the gospel... What's Luke communicating to us? I reckon he's communicating something really important to us, something that Jesus said would always be the case. And that is, whenever the gospel advances, it will be met with opposition. It will be met with conflict and division. It's true in the first century, it's true now in the 21st century. And so good for us to have this and grapple with, it, grapple with this, Because it makes sense of our experience too, doesn't it? It actually makes sense of when we see the gospel rejected and we wonder why. Uh, Helps us to understand why some people will get very angry with Jesus and very angry with us. Uh, it, It helps us to see that the gospel can divide communities, even divide families. Uh, It helps us to see, there's no surprise that the gospel will clash with culture. Uh, that all of this is normal. And it also reminds us not to be tempted to think that opposition means the gospel isn't true or the gospel isn't powerful. Uh, Remember the Apostle Peter, if you're a Bible reader, 1 Peter 4, he says, when you face opposition, don't be surprised. Make sure it's not coming from you, it's not because of you, but coming from the message of Jesus, but don't be surprised. It's exactly what Jesus faced, it's exactly what the apostles faced. So, what's going on here in Ephesus? Um, Here's the map, Uh, we're in the second missionary journey of Paul, he's doing the tour of, of the Mediterranean, he's arrived in Ephesus, we're still there in Ephesus hearing about opposition in Ephesus, Uh, We've heard some great things that have happened in Ephesus Uh, earlier in the chapter, so verse 10. uh, Luke records, all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul had been there for over two years and that is the effect. And verse 20, "The, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Amazing things happen in Ephesus. But now Luke, Luke pauses to remind us again, here is some serious opposition 
to Jesus and the good news. Some serious hostility. Uh, and what's going on here, uh, in, in verse, from verses 23 onwards, a riot is taking place, isn't it? Uh, that's some fairly significant pushback, don't you think? Uh, in fact, Luke says, here is a whole city that is in uproar. A whole city that is angry. Uh, here are people who are physically violent. Uh, here is loud shouting, aggression. The message of Jesus has hit a very raw nerve in the city of Ephesus. There's, there's a battle taking place, you could say, for the hearts of the Ephesians. And it's showing itself in a riot. Now, riots are pretty ugly, aren't they? I think we've, we've seen examples of this both uh, in our nation. If you're old enough, remember the, the Cronulla riots, 2005, how awful that was. Um, other race riots that have happened recently, race riots that have happened in the States, so much emotion, so much anger, so much violence. That's the nature of the riot. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus. Look at verse 23. Uh, you can't underestimate the impact of this. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, a great disturbance about Christianity. Or verse 28, the people were furious and began shouting. Or verse 29, soon the whole city was in an uproar. Uh, the people seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia. All of them rushed into the theatre together. Uh, and it goes on to, to describe um, friends of Paul saying, please do not go into that theatre. It is highly dangerous. Of course, they're fearing for his very life uh, what has happened. Well, what has Paul been preaching? He's been saying, Jesus is king. Turn to him, there is no other. Live for him. Forgiveness is found in him and only in him. And not all the Ephesians think that is good news. Let me, let me give you three observations about the opposition here and then uh, I'll draw some conclusions along the way and then we'll, uh, we'll finish up. The first one I've got is, not everyone who opposes the gospel does so because they think it's untrue. It's not always because they think it's untrue. Look at verse 24. We're introduced to a silversmith, Demetrius. And what's, what's Demetrius' problem? His problem is not with the gospel, is it? Not, not centrally. It's not... I'm not convinced Jesus rose from the dead or I'm not convinced Jesus is the Messiah. What's his problem? His problem is that he once had a thriving business that now is in decline. That people are now believing the gospel, they're now turning to Jesus and they're no longer worshipping Artemis and Demetrius' business relies on people worshipping Artemis. He makes shrines, silver idols and if if this gospel continues his prosperity is at stake and the whole city's prosperity is at stake and he's so concerned he brings the workers union of the city together and he he starts a riot look at verse 27 what he says he says there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name but also that the temple the great goddess artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
Now, as you hear Demetrius's words, what do you think is his main concern? Is it the city's goddess, Artemis, her honour, her worship? Or is it his business losing money? Which one do you think he'd push to incite the whole city? It's true, isn't it? Artemis is an idol, there's no doubt. Uh, Paul is right to say in verse 26, actually, gods made by human hands are no gods at all. You are foolish to worship idols. But it's really interesting that the gospel has actually uncovered another idol in Ephesus, one that's far more common, far more powerful. The idol that really drives the city is the idol of money, the power of money. See, some people will oppose the gospel not because they think it's untrue, but because of the implications of the gospel. Uh, That is, before they've even got to working out whether it's true or not, before they've even considered, is Jesus actually who he says he is? Before they've even got there, they've worked out that Jesus has a claim over their lives and a part of their lives that they do not want to give up. Have you ever had the conversation with someone about Jesus and perhaps an extended conversation where you've explained Jesus, they've explored Jesus, um, they're understanding Jesus, but there's a blockage. And the blockage is not, is the Bible real? The blockage is, isn't, is Jesus the Lord? They get all that. It all makes sense and you think to yourself, what is the issue? And then you realise there's something else going on. There's a relationship that they know Jesus would not approve of, uh, that they don't want to give up. There's a way of running my business, I don't want to give up. There's a lifestyle that I don't want to give up. I know it's true. It's worth saying, isn't it? If you're exploring Christianity, you really need to think honestly about what's going on as you explore Jesus, don't you? Because that often is what's going on. There's the first one. The second one is, the opposition here is utter chaos. Utter chaos. Uh, That's what a riot is, isn't it? People are acting in crazy ways, they're shouting, great is, the, is Artemis of the Ephesians, it's super violent, it's incredibly disorderly. Uh, look at verse 23, there's much confusion. Um, some are shouting one thing, some are, some are shouting another thing. I love that line, most of the people didn't even know why they were there. <laughs> Isn't that so true of a riot? It's like, what, what, why are you here? It's like something within us that just wants to jump on and shout, and there they are, and what's the most unifying thing this city does? It's shout in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the... Can you imagine it? And this is not careful, reason, calm debate, is it? 
This is, this is not the presentation of intelligent arguments to Paul and his companions about why we disagree. This really is mindless, hysterical opposition. And then somehow the city clerk, do you notice the city clerk quietens the crowd? Uh, he's, he's not even a Christian. He, he reminds the crowd, actually, no, no, the Christians have done nothing wrong. Uh, they haven't robbed your temple. They haven't blasphemed your goddess. Stop carrying on like clowns. Um, rioting is actually a crime. Do you want to be called on that? And if you have a grievance against them, take it up in the courts. Use the proper legal channels. It's fascinating, isn't it? That someone without even the wisdom of God can work out, that's what's going on here. And you notice too, it, it seems such an unequal battle, doesn't it? There, there's, there's a handful of Christians, it would seem. It's Paul and his band. And then there's this massive crowd. Uh, verse 30 talks about a theatre. Um, I don't know what you... Th- I used to think for years, theatre, like, is that just like a little movie theatre? Um, but it's actually this picture. It's, it's the largest um, structure in the city of Ephesus. Uh, it's holds 25,000 people, um, so it's a little bit bigger than Wynn Stadium, uh, and it is full of angry people. That's the stadium. They say to Paul, don't, don't go in there. And what's the... So, so the scales look incredibly unbalanced, don't they? But what's the result of the riot? Well, it's a few thousand sore throats, isn't it? It's tens of thousands of sore throats, and it's the threat of an arrest for Christians. The right actually comes to nothing. There's, there's lots of bluster. There's lots of people opposing. There's lots of noise. But it actually comes to absolutely nothing in the end. Uh, the scale of the opposition is actually no opposition to the gospel. I reckon that's really, really important for us to remember. Because uh, in our part of the world... Uh, it can so, opposition can so often feel really shouty, can't it, and aggressive um, on that big public level. Uh, it can feel like, oh, everyone agrees, it's popular, it's, it's noisy, but it's actually not very well reasoned, it's actually not very uh, unified, but it can just feel so daunting, can't it, the scale of the opposition. We can feel so small as Christians. We can feel that the opposition is so much stronger, smarter, more, un- more united, more numerous in their efforts to bring Christianity down. And I reckon Acts 19 shows us that this is not always the case. Things aren't always as they seem. These writers, though they, they, they are numerous, they're by no means a united front. In fact, some of them weren't even sure why they were there. And so the opposition is not always as strong or as together as it would seem. And that's the case in the first century. I think that's still the case today. I don't know whether you're familiar with new atheism. It's been around for the last couple of decades. Um, A group of high-profile atheists who want to evangelise the world to say there is actually no God. Christianity is a fake, and lots of books have been written, they're incredibly popular, um, 
they're often bestsellers. And I reckon they are the ones that are loud and aggressive. I get lots of media airtime, but are not well argued and not always uh, unified. I remember when I was at college, it was actually a a subject I picked up after college. Um, I can't remember the name of the subject now, but our lecturer said to us, I want you to read a collection of the the, uh, most recent works by prominent atheists. Um, There's your assignment. I thought I was coming to a Christian college, uh, but I thought, well, the truth is the truth. If Christianity is not real, let's hear what they have to say. And I've got to say, I did feel a little bit intimidated. I did feel slightly afraid. What am I, what am I opening up as I read these works? What are the best arguments against Christianity? And I was a, I was a little afraid until I actually read them. And realised there's actually no substance here. It is a lot of bluster. There's tons of feeling. There's lots of anger. There's a lot of noise. But they actually haven't grappled with the key claims of Jesus. Um, I'd worked really hard in thinking about the historicity of the Bible and Jesus both in the Bible but outside of the Bible, and they haven't even grappled with those sources. And so it feels like the riot in Ephesus, your attachment to idols, your hatred for God, actually prevents you from serious inquiry. Um, Which is interesting, it's exactly what fellow atheists said about the most famous of the new atheists, uh, this guy, Richard Dawkins. Um, so he, he is a brain, he is an intelligent man, but even his fellow atheists said about him, you're so zealous, you're so determined to destroy Christianity, it gets in the way of your arguments. <laughs> They're actually unhappy with him. And uh, another, Christian, another academic, a Christian, man of, uh, a man by the name of John Lennox, another incredible brain, uh, he, he spoke to us at a pastor's conference about 10 years ago and he told us that in his PhD he quoted Dawkins because he just thought his arguments are so influential. They seem uh, so popular, I just have to grapple with him. And his supervisors said to him, we, we like your thesis but you cannot include Richard Dawkins. It is not up to academic rigour for a PhD. And it's true. And so John Lennox just reminded us, when you push on the arguments, there's nothing there. It looks scary, but there's nothing there. And it can look really, it can feel really intimidating. And how intimidating would it have been for Paul as he approached the city of Ephesus? As he approached the thousands of people? And yet he's bold enough to actually say, the emperor has no clothes. Your man-made gods are actually no gods at all. Uh, What you have is a facade. Now, I'm sure you agree with this. Um, So often, as Christians, we feel like we're on the back foot, yeah? It feels like we're always defending Christianity. Uh, We're always answering the hard questions. We're always playing 
defence, yeah? But there is a time to play the attacking game. There is a time to lovingly, gently, respectfully, but boldly expose the foolishness of rejecting Jesus. To expose the stupidity of worshipping idols. Uh, To expose the idiocy of rejecting Christianity when you haven't even checked out the evidence. The foolishness of living for now and for pleasure. A few weeks ago I was down at the snow and uh, I've got to say it was a very disappointing experience because there's no snow down there and this picture must have been from years ago when there was. Um, But fascinating, uh, I must have been bored because as I'm going up the chairlift I'm going, right, how many possible conversations can I have about Jesus on the way up? It's about a 10 minute ride up, so let's see, see what we can do. Um, so it's really interesting, up on a chairlift, high up there, how do you get to the gospel, you know? Gee, it's high up here, isn't it? If you fell off here and died, um, <laughs> what would God say to you? Um, I had a chat to an instructor and, he's, and he had a young child with him and the child was asking, where does snow come from? Snow comes from clouds, but where does cloud, clouds come from? We, we had a chat about God, he asked, he asked me, what is God? He's got a spirit. But another man, and I've got to say, he, is, he was the unhappiest man I met on this trip. He bragged the whole journey up on the chairlift that now, uh, he, he talks about his, his life, he said, I've lived my whole life raising a family, working hard and paying off a mortgage, and now I have enough money that I don't need to work anymore. And he wasn't, he wasn't that old. And he made clear to, me, clear to me that he lives for himself and no one else. Uh, he no longer has a mortgage. He no longer has a wife. He got rid of his wife. He divorced his wife. Um, and now, finally, he can ski a hundred days a year. Isn't that awesome? Uh, he can ski 100 days this year and next year he can ski another 100 days and the year after that he can ski another 100 days. And what do you think he wanted me to say about that? Um, what, what a dream, how awesome. Uh, it's kind of easy to be impressed by that, isn't it? Or think, that sounds pretty good. But what I should have asked him, and I only thought of this afterwards, was... What will you do on the year after you can't ski anymore? And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. Have you thought about that? Because Jesus has a word for your life, and that is you are foolish. You can't do that forever. It will come to an end. You will meet God. And it won't end well. Don't be intimidated by opposition. Respectfully, lovingly, gently, boldly challenge it. Well, third observation, last one. Uh, God is at work in in the opposition. God is at work here. Uh, I think that's what Luke is doing. He's showing us here's God's hand at work. It's his mission. Uh, His unstoppable mission. God's in control. God will... accomplish his mission no matter what obstacles come up along the way 
And you, and you see it in the riot, don't you? The riot is tough, it is brutal, but God protects Paul and his companions, doesn't he? Uh, the church uh, isn't damaged. There's the, a terrifying opposition is actually stopped by a city, city clerk who's not even a Christian. And the gospel's taken root in Ephesus and Paul is able to move on to the next city. And did you notice there is on view here a very powerful distinction between the rioting of the worshippers of Artemis and the calm confidence, the non-violent approach of Christians? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? That when you realise that the spread of the gospel is God's mission, uh, it, it happens by his power, that he's in charge of it, when you grasp that and really believe it, it is liberating. It liberates you from all kinds of fears. It actually gives you courage, doesn't it? Because if you believe God wants his gospel to go out and he will do it, when we face opposition, we won't panic. We won't fear. We don't need to be hysterical. We don't need to shout. We don't need to be violent. When next time Christians are maligned in the media or your friend attacks you for thinking you're stupid for being a Christian... You don't need to fear, you don't need to panic. And it's not to say we won't defend the gospel, it's not to say we won't have something to say, but we won't be rioting, we won't be hysterical, because we're convinced God is on mission, the spread of the gospel is in his hands and he will accomplish it in spite of opposition. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to be uh, naive. Uh, we will feel the temptation to be aggressive. Uh, we will be tempted to, to fear. We will be tempted to be hysterical, perhaps. But, but when we do that, what are we doing? We're actually looking like the followers of Artemis, aren't we? We're looking more like the followers of Artemis than the followers of Jesus. As if Artemis, as if, sorry, like Artemis, God needs us to defend him. As if our God is weak and powerless. We end up looking more like the opposition. And when you think about it, where are the followers of Artemis to this day? How many of your friends follow Artemis? How many Artemis worshippers are there in Wollongong? Globally, how many Artemis worshippers are there? I couldn't, I couldn't find any. And yet the temple of Artemis looked so powerful, didn't it? It looked like it was there to stay forever. And where is it now? It is in ruins. The city of Ephesus in all its glory and worship of their goddess is gone. The religion of Artemis has been reduced to a footnote in history a speed hump in the history of the spread of the gospel in the Bible. And what's happened to Christianity? Christianity has become the largest religion in the whole world. The good news of Jesus has spread to billions of people across the centuries to this day. Uh, The book we're reading this morning 
he's translated in over 1,100 languages. Do you think God can overcome the opposition you face, that we face? Of course he can. God is thoroughly committed to his mission. He will accomplish it. There's no need to fear. There's no need to panic. Why don't we pray to that end? And why don't we share this good news uh, that desperately needs to be heard? So let's do it.